We come, dear brethren, to our 12th study as we continue to look for unity and to understand more completely what that pursuit entails so that from within us we are aware of the sort of things we should be looking for and thereby we'll be able to identify the possibilities of unity, whereas otherwise we might not even see what is right in front of us. And we're going to continue to work with the concept which I'm presenting as a question in a short phrase, out of balance or out of bounds. And this afternoon I present to you the following exercise. Apollos, a case study. So the case study of the person Apollos. Now, a case study is used so as to present a paradigm by which we can analyze and better understand other life situations that also fit into the details and the arrangement of things as is presented in the case study. And often we use historical incidences as case studies because... The distance of history provides a certain easeness, we're more at ease, a certain comfortability by which we think about the incidences that we're considering over against the kind of pressures that real life brings that we sometimes don't respond to very well, either from reasons of a lack of spiritual development or for sinful motivations that are really resident within us that just don't happen to manifest when we reflect on historical situations that we are otherwise comfortable with. But I hope that in addition to learning from the case study of Apollos, we're also able to examine ourselves as to how we can better apply these principles in real time and distinguish in our own hearts the way in which we may allow things to happen historically and grant a legitimacy to them, when things that are, for all practical purposes, running along the exact same lines in our own time, we have a very different reaction to. We have a less gracious, less balanced reaction to. This case study will be based out of Acts chapter 18, In verses 24 through 28, we're in the year 52 or 53 AD, which is approximately 20 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we read in the 24th verse of Acts 18 that there was a certain Jew bearing the name of the Greek god Apollo, and therefore named Apollos. We're told he was born in the Hellenistic city of Alexandria. He was nonetheless an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, and he came to the Asia Minor city of Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Indeed, the Greek verb for instructed is katageo. And you might hear 
something of the assonance or the resonance of the English word to catechize. Some texts, some Greek texts, add the phrase in his homeland. Whether that is inspired or not, I'm not addressing. But in that he came from Alexandria to Ephesus, it's reasonable to assume that Apollos was catechized in Alexandria, Egypt, in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. I will inform you of another textual variant. There are some manuscripts that use the proper name Jesus in the place of the synonym, if you will, of Lord. So it would state that he taught diligently the things of Jesus, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, Achaia is the region of Lower Greece where Corinth is located, and therefore we can be more specific because we know as we harmonize the book of Acts and even the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, we know that specifically he was disposed to go to Corinth. We are told the brethren wrote on Apollos' behalf, exhorting the disciples in Corinth to receive him, that is Apollos, who, when he was come, helped them much at Corinth, which had believed through grace. There is your salvation by grace through faith. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. No small revelation that one can understand oneself and show others that Jesus is the Christ. You might recall Andrew's profound remark when he found his brother Peter and said, We have found the Messiah. And Philip made a similar remark to Nathaniel. So for the Jews of any time and not the least in that era when Jesus, in the fullness of time, tabernacled among men and the long-awaited-for Messiah was manifested to be able to find the Messiah and tell others that Jesus is the Christ is no small thing. Now, I imagine when you think of Apollos, you tend to think of him at this distance, this historical distance, this comfortable distance, you tend to think of him as a worthy minister of God. But I'm here to make the case that if you do, you are not thinking of him as he was when he first showed up in Ephesus and Aquila and Priscilla first heard him. You read it with me in the end of verse 25 of Acts 18 that Apollos had an unorthodox stance on water baptism. He did not have the straight doctrine, the straight understanding on water baptism. He came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was influential in the synagogue. He was preaching. He was gaining the hearts 
and affections of his hearers, but he was unorthodox in his understanding of the Christian faith. He had obviously not been baptized in Jesus' name himself. In that he only knew the baptism of John, it's obvious that he was not baptized in the name of Jesus personally, and nor was he advocating that anybody else be baptized in Jesus' name. Now, I believe there is proof of that fact, not only in the sense that it is indeed empirical proof, but there is proof that also manifests the seriousness of this deficiency. And we need only to continue to read into the 19th chapter of Acts, where we read, starting from verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, as we were told in Acts 18.27, that he was going to go to Achaia, Paul, now in his third missionary journey, having passed through the upper coasts of Roman Asia Minor, comes to the primary city of Asia Minor, Ephesus, and finding certain disciples where? In Ephesus. Who had recently been in Ephesus? Apollos. He found certain disciples there, and he said to them, and I will insert for effect, in spite of the recent ministry of Apollos, a man mighty in the scriptures, very impacting and influential, a very powerful personality, Paul asked the question, have you received the Holy Spirit, this very critical experience in order to live the Christian faith well? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him this remarkable statement, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Now, it's not my purpose to exegete this passage, so I must pass over certain observations to stick with the program here. But I'll state for your own ears that the statement they have not heard the Holy Spirit does not mean they never ever heard of the Holy Spirit in any connotation whatsoever. What they mean is they did not hear that there's some new definite experience that they're supposed to have of the Holy Spirit. It'd be like if I said to you who have the baptism in the Holy Spirit and someone had some idea of some new experience of the Holy Spirit that had some unusual and unique range of alternate manifestations and I asked you, have you received this version of the Holy Spirit or this experience in the Holy Spirit since you believe, you would say, I didn't even know there was some additional work of the Spirit of God that we should be attending to. So he said unto them, that is Paul did, discerning as we understand their deficiencies, he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? Expecting that wherever Christians were gathered and At 20 years after Pentecost, whomever was ministering to them would certainly bring to them the very critical experience of baptism, at least in Jesus' name, for repentance. And then in addition to that, praying for them, as Paul is very concerned to see occur, that they receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that experience that Jesus set the standard 
for when he said, do not depart from Jerusalem, you disciples that I've trained so well, that I've primed to just go out and preach to the nations, but don't go until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. So he is saying, unto what then were you baptized? And they say unto him, John's baptism. In other words, like Apollos, as we're told in the end of verse 25 of Acts 18, they knew only the baptism of John. Therefore, for however long Apollos was in Ephesus, these particular disciples were not benefited. Indeed, they were, in a very real sense, hindered from going further in their understanding because this minister of God knew only the baptism of John. Dennis Gertner makes the following remark about what we just read in Acts chapter 19 and addresses the correlation between Apollos' ministry and what we find in Ephesus. He says, Luke now turns attention away from Apollos in Corinth to describe Paul's journey to Ephesus. Just as Priscilla and Aquila had found in Apollos a man who, quote, knew only the baptism of John, so Paul now came into contact with, quote, some disciples whose knowledge may be summarized in the same way. Though Luke does not say explicitly that these men had probably been influenced by Apollos before the instruction by Priscilla and Aquila, there is evidence that that is the case. There's a basic understanding with which we all work, and that is that the church will not typically rise higher than the spirituality and biblical knowledge of its leaders. And so when there are serious deficiencies in the ministry, it is a matter of concern. But recall that we're working under the general heading of out of balance or out of bounds. And we're seeking to understand how we should critique such situations in real time by examining a case study from the Bible itself. And we can be asking ourselves, as we're working through this, how would I have reacted in this situation? What would I have thought? I submit to you that if any of us today or any of my hearers have the emotional reaction to the text as we've engaged with it thus far of a rather blasé concern, which is to say you realize that he only knew the baptism of John, but you're not particularly troubled by that. You feel like, well, he got it straightened out. There's no real big deal here. Number one, I'll say that thankfully we will have the rest of this message to help you think this through more specifically and personally. But I will take the occasion to state that I'm glad that you have that relative low emotive sort of feel about you to these incidences because I would argue it's only because you're not in real time right now. It's only because of the comfortability of historical distance and knowing how it all works out on the end, that you can feel the way that you do toward Apollos. Let me first argue that this is indeed a serious deficiency. 
in the ministry of Apollos. It is not, my dear brothers and sisters, that much different than a range of deficiencies that you might be aware of in other ministries within our own time, within your awareness. Now, I suppose for the sake of making sure that you don't close your ears off from what this study presents to your hearts before you even hear the evidence in the presentation, perhaps it'll be useful for me to underscore that we are not minimizing the problematic nature of deficiencies. That has nothing to do with advising how we can practice a better biblical balance in relating to these things so that we don't squelch the possibilities of unity without even giving things an opportunity to develop and correct themselves. When I say that this is a serious deficiency, let me first make the point that it is a heightened concern. The deficiency is all the more problematic because this is an eloquent Alexandrian Jew who has rhetorical prowess. He's trained in how to deliver a message. He's persuasive in his speech. He no doubt has good words and fair speeches, but not necessarily in a negative direction. But he has that native capacity that we know. He's mighty in the scriptures. He seems and is an authority He is otherwise instructed in the ways of the Lord and he is fervent in spirit and he's saying a range of things that are accurate. And this is in the formation of the church in Ephesus before it's really fully established. And they don't have the benefit of all of church history like you do. This is new and fresh in Ephesus and this man is behind the pulpit and his ministry precedes Paul's ministry in this place. And his ministry is powerful. But his ministry is doing absolutely nothing with the final commands of the Lord Jesus Christ relayed, for example, in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus said unto his disciples, When you go into the world, you preach this gospel to every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. We know from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that they were to be baptized in the name that represents the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, in the name of Jesus. And no, we are not a oneness group. We just recognize that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are titles. And if you read the book of Acts for yourself, you will never see them baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't get baptized into three gods. We get baptized into a triune God through the name of the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And whatsoever we do in word or deed, we do all in the name of Jesus. And so... My point is, is that Apollos, as we just read in the text, knows nothing. He's not functioning in this fundamental understanding of Christian orthodoxy. In Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 1 and 2, the author to the Hebrews makes the point that I just stated. This is a first principle. This is not a minor thing. The author says, leaving Therefore, the principles of the teaching of Jesus, let us go on to perfection, 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. The author to the Hebrews is saying the understanding of baptism and indeed the plural baptisms, but let's stay with baptism in Jesus' name, not to the exclusion of what that leads to, which is baptism in the Holy Spirit, neither of which Apollos knew about. Is that correct? Because they had not even heard about the Holy Spirit. He wasn't teaching them that. And this man was representing God in the Christian churches. I want to underscore. So once again, I can't do this at every stopping point, but you should be beginning to reflect upon your own time and experiences and thinking of various individuals who are in the ministry who have deficiencies that you're aware of, some of which are quite fundamental and serious, that they don't know this particular issue. They're not teaching and functioning in that. And before us is the whole question of how do you respond to that? Is everything therefore automatically out of bounds? Or is it possible that the individual is out of balance and something could be done about this? I'm stressing that if you were in the first century and if you had your doctrine straight in your head as Paul, for example, did, you would know this is a serious deficiency. He is not teaching them about baptism in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, when you go out, you preach this gospel, and then you baptize them in the light of this gospel message, in the light of Jesus' resurrection, in the Romans 6 sort of message of going down into the grave and identifying with Christ in His death and rising again with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to be Thomas or Alexander Campbell to see a problem here. These were two men that... As the churches of Christ do to this day, some are more aware of it than others in terms of what their actual doctrinal stances are. Here again, I'm not seeking to parse all of these questions out, but these were individuals that taught, as for example, one of their prominent leaders, Moses Lard, states, and I quote him, He says, I recognize no human being a Christian who is not immersed. And so they teach baptismal regeneration. What I'm stating here is you don't have to have the position that if these believers in Ephesus don't get water baptized in Jesus' name, they're going to go to hell. That's how serious this this deficiency is. It is nonetheless still a very real problem. As C.K. Barrett states, the question that arises out of the text are clear and increase as we proceed and think about what we're reading. Was Apollos a Christian? If he was, how did he escape baptism and all of these ideas? And so I ask you, in this case study, if you were in the synagogue, as were Priscilla and Aquila, and experiencing this man's ministry, and you yourself were fairly robustly orthodox in your understanding, and this man is preaching about whatever he's preaching on, but he's leaving out these first principles, these fundamental ideas, would you view him as out of balance or out of bounds? 
had Aquila and Priscilla placed Apollos in the category of out of bounds because of this lack in his ministry, they would have lost the opportunity to bring Apollos into balance by something that at this historical distance may seem so casual and easy. And if there's no real mystery or tension to this text, but that's again because it's at a distance from you. And that is that they just explained to him the way of the Lord more perfectly. They took the opportunity and we'll discuss more fully how they went about this. It's not always easy, and we'll be speaking about that. But at the end of the day, they explained to him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And as a result of viewing Apollos for the time being as a man who is out of balance, seriously out of balance, if he continues his ministry in this direction and cannot be brought into fuller truth, and he's only going to preach the baptism of John, and he doesn't care about the rest of the message as it relates to Jesus, that's a serious problem. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But they didn't assume that that would necessarily be the outcome. They did not know ahead of time, from this distance, you see how it worked out. But in real time, it's a problem. But by approaching Apollos as one who for the time being is out of balance, they avoided unnecessary division. They could have started speaking to the attendees in the synagogue and telling them the deficiencies in Apollos because they surely didn't want to combat him in an argument about these issues. They didn't want to combat him intellectually on these issues, say, for example. And so rather than do something more responsible, they just began to tell everybody that Apollos is deficient in these matters and that would perhaps start a rumor and create some division and now we would have some for Apollos and some for Aquila and Priscilla and a division would have occurred and Aquila and Priscilla would have satisfied themselves by saying, well, he doesn't have the orthodox message. This is 20 years after Pentecost. How much time should we be giving this man to get his doctrine straight? But they avoided unnecessary division And as a result, the churches of Christ did not lose the enriching ministry of a man who indeed did lack balance, but he was otherwise mighty in the scriptures. And once he was brought into a fuller balance, that ability that he had was able to be put to full effect. And we are told that he greatly helped those who believed through grace. Here is a ministry that because of This beautiful couple, this husband and wife, Christian team, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they had the wisdom, they had the spiritual balance within their beings that even absent Paul being beside them when they were in this situation, rather than overreact, they went to Apollos and they spoke to him in a way that was winsome. And indeed, they did win this one. And as a result, this man who could have been sidelined if he was approached in an inappropriate manner became a mighty resource in the churches of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful case study. But let's take a closer look into the situation. I want to bring you to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And that is the year 51 AD. The second missionary journey is typically dated between the dates of 49 and 51 A.D. 
And we read in the middle of this second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul's in Acts chapter 16 in verse 6, the following words. Now, when they, Paul and his company, had gone through Phrygia, a region that is near, well, in Asia Minor, in that whole area that you know as Turkey in modern times, they went throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, Another region within that general territory. Here's the important phrase. They were forbidden during his second missionary journey. They were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Asia refers, as we stated earlier, to the Roman province of Asia Minor. And this province is on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and the major city of Asia happens to be Ephesus. Now, I suppose you might need me to tell you that in Paul's first missionary journey, he certainly did not go to Ephesus at all. On the second missionary journey, he is heading in that direction to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit forbids him to do so. At the close of the second apostolic mission, so somewhere in 51 A.D. We read in Acts chapter 18, in some of the verses that come just before the section we're focusing on, which is verses 24 through 28, but we read something else about the city Ephesus as it relates to Paul in Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. And Paul, after this, wherever he was in his second apostolic missionary journey, he tarried there, that is, in Corinth for a good while. Now, incidentally, it is in Corinth where Paul first met Aquila and Priscilla, who had lately come from Rome because of a decree by Claudius Caesar ejecting the Jews from Rome at that particular time. So we're told in verse 18 that during Paul's Second apostolic mission, toward the end of it, as we will see in a moment, we're first oriented in Corinth, that is obviously in Greece, and then we're told he took leave of the brethren in Corinth and sailed from there into Syria, or let's say toward Syria, where Antioch is, Antioch of Syria, from which he is based, it's his home base, And he took with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sancria, for he had a vow. And in route, or en route, to Syria, verse 19, he came to Ephesus. Paul came to the city of Ephesus. We know from Acts 16, verse 6, this is the first time that Paul is in the city of Ephesus certainly as an apostle, and now having the gospel of Jesus Christ committed to his trust. And we read that he left them there. The antecedent to the plural pronoun them is Aquila and Priscilla. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, but he himself entered into the synagogue, that is, into the synagogue within Ephesus, which I'll tell you ahead of time is the same synagogue that Apollos will enter into, where what we read in Acts 18, 24 through 28 takes place, he himself entered into the synagogue and he reasoned 
with the Jews. He began to minister to them. Are you seeing this with me? He's in that synagogue that Apollos is going to come to. And he's reasoning with them to some extent. And what you're hearing here, and we'll fill this out in just a moment, the way that Luke is telling us the story is he's basically saying is, Paul leaves Greece, heads to Syria, stops in Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he doesn't stay. But he gives you this little parenthetical historical point. Well, he did go into the synagogue, though, for one brief occasion, and he began to reason with the Jews. And then verse 20, when these Jews within the synagogue desired him to stay longer with them, he consented not. And obviously, this had to be a very brief visit, did it not? Because when you get to Acts chapter 19, which is in his third missionary journey, and he finds some disciples in Ephesus, and he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? He didn't get a chance even to get into that with them, or they would have said, well, of course we did. You told us about him. So he consented not, but he bade them farewell. So he shared something. Who knows what it was? But this is the give and take of real life, is what I'm trying to say. You yourself may have found these Ephesian believers, say, for example, as no doubt Priscilla and Aquila did when they were there, deficient in their understanding. And they could have not only dismissed Apollos, they could have dismissed all of these Jews and said, no one thinks like we do. Well, they just didn't get a chance yet to hear. Paul says, I must by all means keep this feast, most likely Passover. One can't say for sure. Some texts actually introduce the word Passover into the text, but it's not in what I would take to be the best text, but it probably is Passover because it would impinge upon travel on the Mediterranean Sea. So that's why he would be burdened about not staying around in Ephesus, traveling while he could, so he could get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. And then we read, as Paul said, let me finish the statement, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you. Isn't it wonderful to know of a man in ministry who keeps his word? That's no small thing to go all the way back to Ephesus. Of course, he says, if God wills, and he sailed from Ephesus. So the basic question I have before you, which is obvious, is did Paul really establish a ministry in Ephesus before Apollos came? The answer is no. So now I bring you to Paul's third missionary journey, and that occurs between the years 52 and 57 AD, and it is remarkably summarized in just two verses. In chapter 18, beginning in verse 22, we read, And when he, that is Paul, landed at Caesarea, this is the Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast of, we'll call it Palestine, south of Mount Carmel. This is not Caesarea Philippi. And had Anabas, had gone up and saluted the church. I give you the Greek because that is the classic Hebrew expression for, translated into Greek, of course, but the classic Hebrew mental conception of going up to Jerusalem. So that's a 65-mile trip southeast from Caesarea, which is interesting all on its own, but a bit beyond what we're focusing on here, and that is, well, number one, some of the challenges that are 
in the real world as to how you get messages to people and why some people just haven't had the chance to hear yet. Now, you might think none of those things should be existing any longer because people have Bibles and things are available in books and all the rest of it. Well, I don't dismiss that, but this is 20 years after Pentecost. And travel on the Roman roads was relatively easy as far as things go, and the common language was there, and the Pax Romana was there, and so on and so forth. I'm just saying that in real time, you might not respond well to the dynamics that are in front of you and have quick, easy answers. Whereas when you look at this historic example, you think it's not complex at all. You think it's just simple. There was a man who was eloquent that preached. He didn't know the full message. A couple people came up and told him. He listened to them and everything went on swimmingly. I'm saying that you can't just take that for granted because one way of making the point is to state or to ask, what would you have done if you were there? And the short answer is exactly what you're doing right now. Because if you were in real time with the pressures of the moment, with the set of viewpoints that you presently obtain that guide your conduct, you would feel compelled to do a certain set of things under the pressures of the moment. And you would either avoid Apollos or be disappointed when he didn't bring forth these basic principles and just sort of shake your head and nudge Aquila or nudge Priscilla, depending on who you are, and say, what a sad thing, another one that doesn't have the message. And never even think about an alternate way of going about something so you just don't divide things up again and again and again and you don't seek unity with any particular effort. So I need to continue to read out of Acts 18. He salutes the church, I would argue, in Jerusalem. And then he went, Katabe, from Katabeno. He went down, which is kind of strange because it's really north, but it's the language of the Hebrew mind. He went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Dear friends, that's a 20-day journey. If you allow a little bit of time for talking to some brethren along the way, I mean, it's an 18-day journey just normal walking the 500 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch of Syria. This is the commitment that these individuals had. But these are also the challenges of their time. Maybe we don't have those same challenges, so you dismiss the deficiencies that you see in present-day ministries, but there are other challenges. Maybe the challenge is the plethora of information that is out there. The information is so abundant, nobody even accesses it because they don't think to read these things or be told these things. No one ever told me. Someone might tell you, no one ever opened the Bible on the issue of baptism in Jesus' name or the question of the head covering or the Christian's posture toward the state. No one ever opened the Bible and reasoned with me out of the scriptures and helped me to understand it acribos, more accurately. So in verse 23 of Acts 18, we are told that after Paul had spent some time there in Antioch, he departed, there's your third missionary journey, and here it's summed up so quickly. So unlike the first two journeys, which are much more involved in how it unfolds, of course he does go into some of the details in the following chapters, but it's summarized here. He went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. Are you hearing me? 
what you're going to get to soon is Acts 19, when he gets to Ephesus. Do you remember in the second missionary journey, he went to Phrygia and he went to Galatia, but was forbidden to go to Ephesus. The way Luke is telling us about the third missionary journey is he first tells us that Paul leaves Antioch of Syria. He goes to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthens the disciples. How is Paul strengthening the the disciples? By preaching them to them the whole counsel of God. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Withholding nothing that is profitable. He is a minister who is apt to teach. He isn't somebody that just wants to teach. He made sure that he was first trained to teach and knew that he had a message to bring. And he is genuinely strengthening the disciples. But Luke inserts a pericope at the end of Acts chapter 18 following the verses I just read, Acts 18, 22 through 23, he inserts this story, this case study, this vignette of the ministry of Apollos, and in some degree, it's in contrast to the Apostle Paul's. And it's going to be followed by Paul himself ultimately getting to Ephesus in his third missionary journey. And then we'll read about what happens there, part of which is we will discover that these disciples did not know about the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful I know about the Holy Spirit. I think it's problematic that Christians today are not taught properly on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They have all kinds of reactions and and unfortunate mindsets about these things. And it's our, it is a real crippling feature in the Christian churches, in my view. But Apollos was not teaching them about the Holy Spirit, bottom line. But the question is, is how do you respond to it? Do you have this nice little calculus where everything that doesn't dot its I and cross its T like you is ipso facto out of bounds? It's so easy to walk through this Christian walk. You just put it out of bounds. You criticize it. You think negatively about it. You shake your head in disgust, so to speak. And that's it. Well, you're no Aquila or Priscilla, if that is the case. Let's come back to the pericope. That's just a textual term. It comes from a Greek word that means to cut out, literally. So we're just cutting out a certain section. It's a sort of uh, self-contained piece of information. And the story of Apollos travels from Alexandria to Ephesus and what transpires there before he goes to Corinth is a self-contained story. Here's a synopsis of what takes place that is just convenient for us to refresh our minds with. It's from Professor Lynn Kohick. She writes, Before Paul arrived in Ephesus, Apollos taught in the city's synagogue, but he was not aware of the baptism of Christ. Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul had taught on the second missionary journey, expanded Apollos' understanding of early Christian teaching with support from the Ephesian church, whatever that was, and it wasn't much, by the way, at that time, but with support from the Ephesian church, Apollos went on to teach the believers in Corinth and, according to Luke, was very effective there. A beautiful little synopsis just to set everything in your head again. We have the beautiful picture 
of Apollos coming into fuller understanding and whatever constituted the believers in Jesus within Ephesus prior to Paul's lengthy ministry in Ephesus that starts in Acts 19, because he only visited very shortly and just showed up in the synagogue for just a bit and then left. Apollos is the one who precedes Paul and has any sort of extended ministry there. And because Aquila and Priscilla were left there in Ephesus, they were in attendance in the synagogue. There was not even a church yet. They were in attendance in the synagogue that Apollos was speaking within. And what I'm saying is, whatever constituted the enlightened believers among the Jews within that synagogue, they all collectively were willing to write a letter of recommendation instead of opposition, which would otherwise have necessarily been the case, if you're understanding what I'm saying, if they hadn't spoken to Apollos and just wrote, he doesn't know the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. Nice guy, eloquent from Alexandria. They could even made hay of his name is Apollos, the god of the oracle at Delphi. He's a Hellenistic, unenlightened heretic. Actually, what would you expect from Alexandria, Egypt? And all the worse that he's eloquent. So he's mighty in the scriptures. Lots of rabbis are. It's of no use. This man should be avoided. And we might have had a class, maybe three or four, within the synagogue who would have been so impressed by Apollos' ministry that they would have written their own isolated letter and said, I don't know, when he spake, he sure warmed my heart. I think you should receive him. And the division would be perpetuated. Now, I haven't the time presently to give you historic duplications of these sort of dynamics and to relate to you the sad state of affairs that occurred in those situations that went precisely along the lines that I've just discovered. I will, in subsequent study, as the Lord allows, give you some historic examples of how things were just so mishandled and so messed up. But I think, actually, if you just look within your own experiences, you might see some. Hopefully, especially under the illumination of this message, and realize there's a way to go about looking for unity in a more Christ-like manner. Let's reflect more deeply about the deficiencies in Apollos' ministry. For example, this remark from the British Bible scholar of the early 20th century, J.B. Polehill, He writes, Priscilla and Aquila had remained in Ephesus to carry on the work there until Paul's return. Evidently, the ministry in Ephesus had not yet extended beyond the synagogue. And when Apollos began his Christian witness there, his deficiencies quickly caught the couple's attention. That's something we can all reflect on, especially when we look out into experiences that we have ourselves. And we're in situations where a particular ministry, a particular person is sharing their ideas. And it's quickly obvious to us that there are serious deficiencies in their understanding. That was Priscilla and Aquila's experience. And we're looking at this case study to see what their response was and to help instruct our own hearts as to what our response should be. Dr. Eckhart Schnabel agrees with this understanding of the set of affairs that we've read. He writes, Apollos' teaching about baptism was deficient. He may have baptized people with an emphasis on repentance and forgiveness of sins, which would be captured in 
his understanding of John's baptism, which had, as far as that went, it had a moral emphasis. It wasn't in the light of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary. The author goes on to say, without explaining the association of immersion in water with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This would certainly have been confusing for new converts and would have to be rectified. And then take this third witness to these same observations. The Lutheran theologian Richard Lenski writes the following, Luke marks this limitation in the equipment or understanding of Apollos when he says that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. By the baptism of John, the whole teaching and work of the Baptist are referred to. The idea is not that he knew nothing about Christian baptism at all. Incidentally, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, so some vague notions would have been working in Apollos' mind, but that this knowledge did not extend to the completion of the work of Jesus. So we have a lack of extension. And what is it that we confront in our times whenever we sense deficiencies, wherever they are? One way of describing it, unless they're complete heretics, is that it's a lack of extension. Their knowledge is not extensive enough in our view. And I'm saying that's exactly the sort of situation that Priscilla and Aquila were feeling in real time. That he had some vague notions, but this man who's behind the pulpit, his knowledge is not extensive enough to really help these believers into the into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to be preaching about the baptism of John. It's something, for example, like Jews, or I should say Messianic Jews, that still live within the celebration of the old Jewish feasts and so on. They sort of live in that zone, and they may even observe kosher prohibitions and the like. And, and you know, you could, you could just shake your head in a negative way, is what I'm saying, and be like, oh, another one, out of bounds. Maybe they just lack an extension in their understanding and maybe no one has taken them aside and kindly and compassionately sought to help them to better understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. So what I'm, or what we're reading here is, Lenski goes on to say, this of course included all, also, excuse me, the command to baptize all nations. You know, Mark 16, he didn't understand that. Fundamental statement from the resurrected Jesus to his disciples, his apostles. He didn't know anything about that. The events that transpired at the time of Pentecost and later. To know only John's baptism was not to know about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. Not to know about the communion of the bread and cup. Not to know about the first church at Jerusalem. Or even the fundamental underpinnings of the mission of the apostles themselves. If you only know the baptism of John, and if we also carry with that the realization that the few disciples in the synagogue in Ephesus did not know about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as it relates to Pentecost when the apostle Paul showed up in Ephesus, is confirming that 
He didn't know the full message of Jesus. He didn't know about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that alone is something that is absolutely critical to living the Christian faith well. And Apollos did not have that understanding. Well, we might ask ourselves, how could such a deficiency exist approximately 20 years after Pentecost? If you were sitting in your seat in the synagogue, as I've been seeking to sort of prod your thoughts with, you might have been asking yourself that same question. I wonder with what kind of attitude behind it. How could you not know these things 20 years after Pentecost? Well, let's consider how maybe that might have happened. An Anglican theologian, A.C. Hervey, happened to be the bishop of the Diocese of Bath and Wells, writes the following, It is difficult at first sight to conceive how at this time anyone could know the baptism of John without knowing further that of Christ's. But a possible account of it is that Apollos, living in Alexandria, Whereas yet there were, there was no Christian church and church history will bear that out. We don't know about a Christian church in existence in, in Alexandria, Egypt at this time. We don't know that there wasn't, but we don't know that there was. Possibly Apollos had met some Jews who had been in Judea at the time of John's ministry and had heard from them of John's baptism and preaching and of his testimony to Jesus as the Messiah, but had no further opportunity. How about that for a little phrase? He didn't have an opportunity, at least relative to the give and take of life, something like you and me. We don't always want to hear it and get excoriated about certain things when we could say, I just didn't have an opportunity, brother, sister. And maybe it's not always the best excuse because things are available and whatever. You know, you can read a Bible, can't you? You could come to church, couldn't you? You could have listened to my sermon twice, shouldn't you? You understand what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to minimize personal responsibility. I'm just saying here's a real world Example in the give and take of real life. And I'm showing you how Christians responded to this in the Bible. And it is validated. It is spoken of approvingly in the Bible. He had no further opportunity of careful instruction in the faith of Jesus Christ until he happened to come to Ephesus and make the acquaintance of his compatriots Aquila and Priscilla. Horatio Hackett works with the same problem of how someone couldn't know these things 20 years after Pentecost in the Roman Empire where information moved around, as we know, quite fluidly, where even at Pentecost there were Jews from the dispersion who were at Pentecost. Hackett writes, Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord, probably by some disciple of John who had left Judea before the Savior commenced his public ministry, or possibly by John Baptist himself, whose earlier ministry Apollos may have attended. This Alexandrian Jew who, for some reason, went from Alexandria to Ephesus, when we pick up his story, why couldn't he have, on a different occasion, gone from Alexandria to Jerusalem? He was a man mighty in the Scriptures, and maybe he got acquainted with John Baptist's ministry himself went back to Alexandria, Egypt, and wasn't privy to the rest of the story. 
Some infer from the things of Jesus, quote unquote, as some texts have it in Acts 18, that Apollos was aware that Jesus was the Messiah. But the further statement in the text, knowing only the baptism of John, certainly limits that expression, meaning he knew the things of Jesus? Well, how much? And it may exclude a knowledge of that fact. His ignorance in this respect was one of the defects of his religious belief. And at the same time, his views of the deeper Christian doctrines must have been meager in comparison with those possessed by the apostles. So I'm emphasizing here that the deficiencies were real. However you slice it and work out how he arrived at that situation, I'm showing you that there's varying historical ways of explaining how this came about, but still the delivery at the end of the day is that he has a meager understanding of what the gospel really should be. Well, let's just expand this just a little bit since we're here and ask ourselves if this was the situation with Apollos, what might have been the relative situation of other men in the first century? Maybe he's not the only one that had that kind of odd makeup as it relates to his ministry. Think, for example, about the end of Paul's first missionary journey in AD 46. We read in Acts chapter 14, Paul is returning from where he had already traversed and extending the gospel in his first missionary journey. Now he's sort of retracing his steps back. And we read in verse 22 that he confirmed the souls of the disciples and exhorted them to continue in the faith, telling them we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Therefore, are you hearing me, brothers and sisters? Obviously, the stakes are high. Amen? So sometimes you feel like, you know, as you should, Christian Christianity is a serious undertaking. It's nothing to fool around with. And Paul is of the same mind. But then we read, And when they had ordained them elders, presbyteros, in every city and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. You possibly are wondering, what's your point, Brother William? My point is, how deep in the faith and understanding do you suppose these elders could possibly be at this point in the development of these churches. Paul had just established these churches and only several months had, or several weeks or months at the most had transpired, maybe days even, probably more like weeks. He's returning to these same locations in these churches and he's ordaining elders. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't have. You have to do something just like Apollos is sharing what he knows. But what I'm trying to state, I'm trying to, provoke your reflections to get you to think about even Paul himself had to work with individuals who didn't have the same robust degree of understanding as he did. And one might argue, well, in the 21st century, we should certainly not have these deficiencies any longer. But I'm saying to you again, I don't dismiss that thought, generally speaking, but everybody has their story. It was 20 years later, not from 46 AD at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, but, you know, whatever it was, eight or so years later, 
than the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And Apollos is very deficient in his understanding. How about Titus chapter 1 and verse 5? This is in 62 AD. Paul says, For this cause I left you in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city. The question I'm saying to you is relative to the breadth of understanding that you presently have on eschatology and theology and church-state relations and women's roles and water baptism and baptism, Holy Spirit and the gifts and all of that. Is it possible that some of these men, they just did not have that breadth of knowledge and Is it for us to say that no longer can we allow anything approximating that anymore? They have to have the same full scope of knowledge that we have, or they're out of bounds. Certainly, the Bible recognizes that there is a category of out of bounds. Here is some further evidence that within the ministries, within these churches, as a matter of fact, not all was well. There were things that were out of balance. For example, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. But if you understand that context, he isn't referring to those preachers as individuals that he is advocating that they be kicked out of the church. Now, he's not happy with it, but if you're hearing what I'm saying, he's saying they're preaching Christ. They don't have a... A a, a well-developed motive, to say the least, if that's the way you want to put it. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying that he is making that remark, but he's saying they are preaching Christ. He goes on to say, I'm glad that they are preaching Christ. Now, I know that his observation about being glad itself needs to be contextualized. I understand these things, but I hope you're hearing what I'm saying is that He is not putting them in the definite category of out of bounds. And I will give you some examples of that kind of category that Paul is able to refer to. And these individuals are not in it, nor are the individuals that are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. He says to Timothy, I besought you to abide in Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. I would suggest to you that the reason why he had to charge some and why Paul left Timothy there with that obligation to carry out that exhortation was because there were individuals there that were not fully stable, that had tendencies to teach other doctrines. And Paul knows that. And he didn't say, Timothy, anyone who's moving a little bit out of straight doctrine, a little unorthodox in our perceptions, which I'm not saying are are errant perceptions. What I'm trying to say is he didn't just have this reaction. He said, speak to them, charge them. And I'm stating to you that there were men in ministry, in Paul's day, in the churches that didn't have everything right. And you might say, well, that's obvious. And my question is, without getting into further detail, is it so obvious, really? In other words, what does that mean to you? If it only means something like, well, if I already have warmed up to a certain minister and he's a little quirky, I'm okay with that. But anything else that happens outside my door, 
If I hear the least little thing that's out of balance, then I'm already ready to tell my wife and everybody else it's out of bounds. And if anyone in our church, especially the pastor, if he, if he seems to be of a different mindset and saying, hey, we could learn something from this individual. No, no, I have a visceral reaction. I break out in, in hives of rejection because he is deficient in some palpable place. And I say, well, what would you have done with the ministry of Apollos? What would you have done with these men that are preaching Christ with not the best motives and you can kind of sense it? What would you have done with these individuals that have a tendency to other doctrines and they need some supervision in a sense over their lives? They need other brothers to challenge them as Paul did to Peter and say, hey, Peter, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, I'm not arguing that with these things that I'm presenting to you, then magically we can solve all the problems out there. I don't know what God will or will not do, but I'm trying to say that you have to understand the equipment that the Bible offers to us, and somebody somewhere has to begin to think more biblically rather than just shrugging your shoulders, giving up and remaining in the status quo and patting yourself on the back for keeping your doctrine nice and pure under the napkin of the roof of your particular church. Sure, there's a thing that we can call out of bounds. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13, there are false apostles, there are deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. That's a category. That's a category that exists today. But who fits into that category is What I'm asking, was Apollos a false apostle? No, not in the way that 2 Corinthians 11.13 speaks of. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul says, there are many, and he's talking primarily about ministers, there are many who walk, of whom I have told you often, and I tell you, Paul says, while I'm weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many in the ministry who are enemies of the cross of Christ. But thank God Aquila and Priscilla recognized that Apollos wasn't declared at the moment an enemy of the apostle, of, of the cross of Christ. He was to be given an opportunity to understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. Well, let's bring this message to a close by returning back to Apollos. And let's think of the way that uh, this all worked out. J.P. Lang, a Calvinist scholar of the 19th century, says the following, Notwithstanding all these deficiencies, Apollos was filled with a glowing zeal and enthusiasm, which prompted him to make every sacrifice and constrained him to speak with an impressive zeal. He's Referring to what we read in Acts 18 and verse 25, where we're told that this man was catechized, catechized in the way of the Lord, and he was zeonton penumati. He was, he was alive. He was living in the spirit. The King James has, he was fervent in the spirit, and it says that he spake and taught acribos. He taught accurately the things of the Lord. Now, when we get to Priscilla and Aquila's ministry to Apollos, the same adverb is used. He then understood things even more accurately. 
Here's what I'm trying to underscore. I'm trying to underscore that this was a man who, yes, was deficient, but he did have something of a livingness in his life. It reminds me of Denny Keniston, if I may use a more modern example, who's since gone on to be with the Lord. And I was quite taken with Denny Keniston's ministry. Well, recognizing that there were certain things that I wouldn't exactly replicate. But I might state, for example, if I may be so bold as to say how disappointed I have always been or how disappointed I was over the years to see actually fellow ministers in churches like This one who distanced themselves from Bobby Freeman's ministry because of some ick or tick that they didn't particularly like. And they didn't seem to appreciate that he was fervent in spirit and spake a lot of things very accurately. And they perpetuated unnecessary divisions in my view because, well, he was out of bounds because he didn't do this, that, and the other thing exactly the way that we wanted it done. And as a result, it just perpetuates the divisions. And within those divisions, I think you lack the blessing of God. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, to seek that place within which to experience the anointing, for there God commands the blessing. So I'm saying that Aquila and Priscilla didn't simply focus on his deficiency. They saw potential in this man. They were thankful for what he did bring. Something like, for example, my appreciation of Pastor James Coates up in Alberta, Canada. When I state that, I feel in certain places already some would be nervous, probably not here, but because they then feel as though I'm obligated to validate or to to embrace everything that that man would ever say. And all I'm trying to say is, Dear brothers and sisters, if you're ever going to experience Christian unity, I'm sorry if you don't like me putting it this way because you think it tends toward compromise, but I would say take a deep breath and relax for a moment. And if you can't do it on your own, find leadership somewhere that has the capability of assisting you to discern well while you relax for a moment and let all of the ministries bless your life if they're relatively legitimate, which is to say they're not out of bounds entirely. Now, is our situation arguably more complicated than the first century church? I would say certainly it is. In my view, I think it's more complicated. But I do not think that these paradigms that we're looking into do not apply today. I think it's just the distance of history that makes these sort of dynamics seem so easy to navigate through and so unproblematic over against when you feel the pressures of the moment and the personality right in front of you and your awareness that, oh, this man has a great zeal for God, but he's a post-millennialist and we just dismiss that. Well, I don't know. Maybe he understand, he doesn't understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. And maybe you don't somewhere either. John Stott makes the following observation. He says, it is not possible to be sure which Christian truths Apollos knew when he taught, quote unquote, accurately, and which were explained to him more accurately. Well, that speaks to the point I have already made. So we'll move on to Patton Gloges, a Scottish theologian's statement about Apollos. He says, Apollos appears to have been ignorant of the effects of Christ's mission and sufferings, 
and of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He knew only, we are informed, the baptism of John. It is improbable that he was one of the Baptist's immediate disciples, but rather that he received his religious instruction from one of John's disciples who had come to Alexandria and who had been ignorant of the great offense which followed the death of Christ. I give you that last remark in order to remind you again that the deficiencies were palpable and they were real. But this deficient Apollos, thanks be to God, encountered an efficient graciousness in the Christian couple known as at least four out of the six times this couple is mentioned in the Bible. So the majority of times they're known as Priscilla and Aquila, which on its own is a little bit of lesson, a little lesson nested in this whole thing. Priscilla is the female, if you don't know, and she is listed first. And I feel the pressure of time. I think that I need to make a beeline for the conclusion of this particular message, but were I not under that restraint, I would expand upon even the possibilities of perhaps a Priscilla, as women often are, may have been a little bit more easygoing in her nature. Maybe that's the reason why Priscilla is first. It could have been that Aquila didn't fully understand the gospel as well as Priscilla. She may have been more perceptive in the short term than Aquila. It could have been that they worked as a team and Aquila knew that Priscilla was a bit more eloquent or she was just dispositioned better to engage in these sorts of things. Or it could have been none of the above and probably what you would like to think, maybe not you, I say somewhat generically. You just want a bland, non-complicated sort of vision of the two of them are just equally adept and Aquila probably was much of a leader in this particular situation as was Priscilla and he just brought her along to keep the couple together. Well, I suppose it could be that way, but in real life, it doesn't always work out that way. Some of us have strengths over against others and we should allow those strengths to be used in the interest of a better unity. And we should realize where we're not that good at certain things. That's what it is to look for unity. That's a part of it. And I'm trying to say, had they not lived in these sorts of things, we would have had division where we did not need and we would have lost the benefit of some of these ministries. I want to underscore the gracious nature with which Aquila and Priscilla ministered to Apollos. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, we read that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. What do you suppose that looks like? An eloquent man speaking fervently with certainty. A man who's mighty in the scriptures, making his case. It must have been profound and impressive. And dear Aquila and Priscilla, about whom we have no reason to think that they were highly educated Jews themselves, but they had been taught by Paul, and they understood more of the gospel than Apollos did. And they're sitting out there in the synagogue hearing this, and we read that when they heard Apollos, we're told that they took him on to them. Pros lambano is where the verb comes from, and expounded onto him the way of God 
which stands for the Christian faith, by the way, the early way that the believers were designated is the way. So we're talking here about the fact that he did not know the Christian faith that deeply. And they explained to him the Christian faith more accurately. F.F. Bruce makes the observation that I am presenting to you here in the text that Aquila and Priscilla had the wisdom and the graciousness and the decency to bring Apollos apart privately and speak to him privately over against correct him publicly either right in the synagogue say hey hey brother 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 what are you talking about or after they're mingling as they certainly did within the synagogue address the issue right then and right there and create a mess in the whole thing just so they could prove i know more than apollos does i know a few things that's not looking for unity ff bruce says how much better Is it to give private help to a teacher whose understanding of his subject is deficient than to correct or denounce him publicly? This was an application of Romans 14 and verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. That's in your Bible. When you're looking for unity and you're in this configuration of life, you ought to look for the things which make for peace. If you still can't find them, at least you haven't violated that text. Ephesians 4 and verse 3 says we should give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what they were doing in my view. C.K. Barrett says Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul had left in Ephesus apparently, attended the synagogue and there heard Apollos preach. You remember Apollos wasn't there when Paul left Ephesus. But he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. And they're in the synagogue, probably ministering themselves somewhat. But they're not necessarily mighty in the scriptures. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because when Paul gets there, he doesn't have this burgeoning church that are the result of Priscilla and Aquila's ministry. I want you to feel what's happening on the ground. They're in the synagogue. They're sharing what they know. Apollos shows up when Paul is absent. And as C.K. Barrett goes on to say, they were impressed, but it seems, with his promise more than his achievement. But isn't that beautiful? They were able to see promise in this individual. He needed further instruction, so they took him aside and they set forth to him the way of the Lord more accurately. In the interest of moving forward, I will continue to relay some things with you without a great deal of my own comments. Hear the quotation from John Calvin, which speaks to the decency and the spirit of love that motivated Aquila and Priscilla's actions toward Apollos. Calvin says, By this it appears how far Priscilla and Aquila were from the love of themselves and from envying another man's virtue. In that, they deliver these things privately to an eloquent man, which he may afterward now utter publicly. That is, 
they go to him privately and explain things to him in private without anybody else knowing who's giving him this information, knowing he's the eloquent preacher. He'll take these things and then incorporate them into his ministry and may never give them credit, but they don't care. They just want unity. They want to see the work of God advance. Calvin goes on to say they excelled not in the same grace wherein Apollos excelled. They might not even have been held in high esteem in the congregation. Moreover, they most diligently help him whom they see better furnished as with elegance in the use of scripture so that they keep silence and he alone is heard. I'll rephrase this language. What Calvin is saying is they recognize We don't excel in this man's gift. We might have more knowledge on this particular issue, but we don't excel in this man's gift of eloquence. And rather than cause division by getting party spirits going, this is what we'll do. We'll take the best possible method toward keeping everybody together and advancing the cause of Christ. We'll take him apart privately. We'll explain to him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And we'll do it happily and encourage him. Now go forth and preach that word. Because we can't. That's not our gift. We might understand this particular thing. But just because I understand this particular thing better than you should not make you feel like I want to take over your position and do what you do because I know one single thing more than you. That's not looking for unity. That's looking for personal prominence. And Aquila and Priscilla didn't operate in that way. And I'm saying how many times in real life do we see situations where maybe you could write a letter, maybe you could share something even anonymously, find some clever way to seek the unity of the faith in the bond of peace. This indeed is body ministry, especially when it's locally, but you could even expand the metaphor in a broader sense in the churches of Jesus Christ. This is striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to give you the example before I close with a refreshing set of remarks about what we've been discussing today. I want to give you the comparative example that occurred in the life of the early English Calvinistic reformer Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, a very important Protestant reformer in England, started out as a zealous Roman Catholic priest, but he finished as a martyr under Mary Tudor, who had him burned at the stake along with Nicholas Ridley on on October 16, 1555. If you're familiar with the work of Reformation within England under Henry VIII and then into Mary Tudor, you certainly know the name Hugh Latimer, one of the prominent early reformers. But I already told you, this individual Hugh Latimer began his ministry as a zealous Roman Catholic priest. So how did this eloquent priest become a pious Protestant? The answer is through the humble wisdom of a lowly Lutheran monk by the name of Thomas Bilney who was a part of a small circle within England that had had some acquaintance with the writings of Luther. He was 22 years old when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Thomas Bilney was. James Montgomery Boyce captures the historic affairs surrounding Latimer's life and its intersection with Thomas Bilney with the following words. 
No one thought very much of the lowly monk Thomas Bilney. I will add parenthetically, while Thomas Bilney was around with his nascent developing understanding of Reformation principles, Hugh Latimer was zealous and was impressive and was eloquent, but he was solidly in the Roman Catholic faith, maybe more evangelical than many other priests, like St. Luther was before his conversion, if you're following what I'm saying, but, but he was a Catholic priest. No one thought much about Thomas Bilney, but Bilney was converted. And he wondered how it might be possible for him to bring the gospel to Hugh Latimer. Billy thought that Latimer would be a tremendous force for the Reformation in England if he could just hear the gospel. So Billy prayed about this rather than just say, Oh, Hugh Latimer, Roman Catholic priest, out of bounds, nothing more needs to be said. Which is not, I hope I don't have to keep saying the footnotes. I'm not saying I'm indifferent to Roman Catholicism. I'm trying to take you back historically into similar sets of affairs. And I'm I'm trying to tell you the same dynamics in our own particular makeup and characteristics and colors occur today. That's what the case study is all about. So Billy prayed about this and finally hit upon an idea. Priests were required to hear those who wanted to confess their sins. So one day when Latimer was serving in the Catholic Church, Bilney went up to him, tugged at his sleeve, and asked Latimer to hear his confession. Latimer said he would. So they went into the confessional and Bilney confessed the gospel to him. He told how he was a sinner, Bilney. How he was unable to save himself by his own good works. How Jesus had died for him. And now how by faith the righteousness of Jesus had been imputed to him apart from good works. That is what he confessed to Hugh Lattimore. And in that way, Lattimore heard the gospel for the very first time and he was converted and became a very important instrument in the English Reformation and died a pious believer in Jesus Christ at the stake. Because a man named Thomas Bilney, something like Aquila and Priscilla, saw the potential in an individual instead of just dismissing him. He prayed for that man and said, how can I help this man understand the way of the Lord more perfectly? Aquila and Priscilla, in a way I would say similar to Thomas Bilney, set their eyes on providence rather than on the problem. Why don't you sometimes see the possibilities in providence? You know, here you are at a certain place in a certain time under certain circumstances. Who knows what the Lord may do? Why do you just dismiss the possibilities as opposed to pray and strive to do everything you can do without promoting yourself, but help somebody else come to a better understanding of the faith and be willing to decrease if Jesus will increase? Why don't we see that? among the churches more. I believe that it can be said that indeed they were looking at the situation from providential perspectives rather than, well, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? They had a more God-centered, more lofty perception. Lenski makes the following remark. Listen to these words. It was providential that this valuable man, Apollos, came to Ephesus just at this time. The teachers he needed to complete his education had also been providentially brought to Ephesus just at this time. 
Paul was not there and would not get there for some time. Not even a congregation was found there. Only a humble tent maker and his equally unpretentious wife were there to take Apollos in hand. But with this eloquent, able university graduate condescend to go to school to a tent maker, a common artisan, and to his wife who had never attended a university... The best university training Apollos ever received was given him in this tent maker's shop. And the best professor Apollos ever had was this tent maker's wife, Priscilla. And among the greatest services these two ever rendered to the Lord was what they did for Apollos. In the whole story of Acts, there is no picture that is more ideal than this of Apollos and Aquila and his wife. And perhaps some feel like I'm an idealist. You can speak about all these things and bring forth rhetoric and words about them, but you obviously haven't been looking around and seeing the real state of affairs. It's all just so much platitudes. Apollos himself manifests a remarkable spirit of humility by not striving to save face and rather seeking to save sinners. What am I referring to? Once again, because of the limitations of time, I can only remind you of the fact that after Aquila and Priscilla take Apollos aside, explain to him the way of the Lord more perfectly, we read immediately that Apollos goes to Corinth and the brethren write a letter of recommendation. Well, wouldn't you think that Apollos would want to stay in Ephesus and correct the record and straighten out the things that he failed to state to these believers in the synagogue? Well, let me first read to you these statements of J.P. Lang and then perhaps enlarge upon them, but this will help you to understand this whole situation more delicately. And you'll see how it shows that Apollos, and we see this elsewhere in his life, he was a man who wasn't trying to save face. He wanted to save sinners. J.P. Ling says, A feeling of delicacy may have restrained Apollos after receiving such large enrichments of knowledge from Aquila and Priscilla from presenting himself again in public as a teacher in the same spot in which his previous teaching had been in various respects marked by crudeness and deficiencies. In other words, this is what I see. Apollos arrived full of life in God and zeal. He preached to that synagogue as best he could. Obviously, the Spirit of God is starting to do something in this Jewish synagogue. It's not stretching out through all of them, but it's effervescing among them. And Aquila and Priscilla take him aside privately and explain to him what he doesn't understand. And no doubt Apollos is a sharp man and, he, and he's humble and, and he perceives where his deficiencies are. And now the question is, do you go back in the synagogue and explain where you were wrong? Or do you do the following, which is what Apollos did? He realized, you know what? I'm just going to leave this in the Lord's hands. I'm not going to feel like 
I have to straighten this out to make sure everybody understands that I know things well now. This is delicate. I was just here preaching in the way that I did. I was deficient. I've only recently learned these things. I really do think I understand them, even to the extent that I can go to Corinth and I can help the believers in Corinth, but I just don't think that it will be edifying for me to try to sort this out. Let's leave it to Aquila and Priscilla, or maybe Paul is coming and let Paul sort this out. But bottom line, I don't feel compelled that I have to save face and let everybody know I understand these things better now. I will just leave it in the Lord's hands. Let the Lord be the head of his church and I'll go somewhere else and get things right from ground zero in that location. You muse on that, dear brothers and sisters, because once again, in real time, that's what he did. And I see in that a real decision from his side of humility and an interest to promote the unity of the church. He felt, if I try to sort this out, it's just going to be confusing. I'd probably have to say Aquila and Priscilla took me aside and corrected me. And some people may not understand that. They might say, who's Aquila and Priscilla? It could just be a problem. And maybe they had that discussion. Or maybe Apollos thought of it on his own. And he said, you know what? Let me just go to Corinth. Would you recommend me to the Corinthians? And perhaps he did share with some brethren outside of the synagogue such that they could write the letter. But he didn't stay in Ephesus after being corrected and demand the pulpit to save face. And that is a very important principle which I encourage you to think about more thoroughly. I close this case study dealing with the question of out of balance or out of bounds as we examine the life of Apollos with these remarks from Richard Lenski. One tries to picture the three sitting there, Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla, and going into the great gospel story. Apollos must have asked many questions. Paul's name must have been mentioned often. Little had Priscilla and Aquila thought when they had learned from Paul in Corinth to what use they would have to put their instruction from him. Apollos eagerly absorbed all they could teach him. Suppose you, wife and husband, had been in their place. How would you have acquitted yourself? We here see how in the apostolic age so many churches started in places to which no apostle had come. Remember Laodicea? Remember Colossae? The Christians themselves were the missionaries. So well did the apostle ground them in the faith that they themselves were ready always to give an answer to every man that asked them a reason of the hope that was in them with meekness. Why else be in a church and receive all of this rich teaching if you feel you're under a worthy minister that helps you to understand things acribos, accurately and well? Why else receive all of this teaching if you can't use it to help others who even are like Apollos in the Christian faith but need to understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. We should pray for them if we think we understand something better than they. We should use every device possible like the Thomas Bilneys and the Aquila and Priscilla's of old 
to advance unification in the true and full gospel of Christ. May the Lord bless this case study to your hearts in Jesus' name.